Section 5 of the Final Report from the National Commission on the BP Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill and Offshore Drilling. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Dore. Final Report from the National Commission on the BP Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill and Offshore Drilling. The History of Offshore Oil and Gas in the United States, Part 3 Deeper Still In the 1990s, technological breakthroughs in imaging and drilling through massive salt sheets opened a new subsalt play, first on the shelf and then ranging into deep water. Discoveries in at least four different fold belts across the Gulf of Mexico extended the search for oil into ultra-deep water and led to another wave of innovation in floating production. In 1990, most oil and gas from the Gulf had still come from shallow water. Average production weighted depth had barely reached 250 feet. By 1998, the weighted average passed the 1,000-foot milestone, at which point deep water production, at about 700,000 barrels per day of oil and 2 billion cubic feet per day of gas, surpassed that from shallow water for the first time. As the industry moved deeper, the abandonment and decommissioning of older platforms on the shelf became a thriving business. During the 1990s, 1,264 platforms were removed, more than twice the total prior to 1990. After 2000, removals continued at a rate of 150 per year. Some obsolete platforms found use as artificial reefs through a creative program coordinated by the Minerals Management Service and the states of Texas and Louisiana to place old platforms in specially designated locations on the sea bottom where they attracted marine life much like natural reefs. Meanwhile, another relaxation in the terms of access to Gulf of Mexico leases in the form of the Deepwater Royalty Relief Act, see Chapter 3, helped sustain the oil industry in deep water. Deepwater royalty relief no doubt enticed some oil companies, especially non-majors, into deep water. But judging from the huge upswell in bidding at the May 1995 Central Gulf of Mexico sale, before royalty relief was enacted, the race appeared to be already underway. Oil explorers were clearly gunning for fields like auger with high flow rates and high ultimate reserves. Many of them were also on the hunt for petroleum in a new geological location beneath the Gulf's massive sheets of salt. Subsalt Discoveries Salt is the dominant structural element in the Gulf of Mexico petroleum system. Oil explorers had long ago discovered oil trapped against the flanks of salt domes or between the salt diapirs in the deep water mini-basins. But geologists had typically assumed that there could be no oil reservoirs lying beneath any salt they encountered. By the 1970s, Advancing knowledge about the basin's regional geology suggested that oil could be found under the salt. In many places, the salt pillars that extruded upward into sandstone and shale flowed horizontally in elastic plumes over vast expanses of younger, potentially oil-bearing sediment that extend more than 35,000 square miles across the Gulf. Geologists invented new terminology to describe different kinds of salt formations in the picture they pieced together canopies, tongues, naps, egg crates, and turtle domes, 
and established a special subfield of geology to explain how the salt moves. What they were really interested in, however, was what lay beneath the salt. The subsalt play began in 1990, when Exxon, with partner Conoco, made the first discovery at a prospect called Mickey. Located in 4,352 feet of water on the Mississippi Canyon 211 lease, about 10 miles northeast of where BP would later drill Macondo, Mickey was not then large enough to put into production. Two years later, Chevron drilled a well in Garden Banks 165 through almost 7,000 feet of salt and another 5,000 feet of subsalt sediment. The well found no oil, but was a milestone because it demonstrated that the technology existed to drill through an enormous body of salt. Finally, in 1993, Phillips Petroleum announced the first commercial subsalt oil discovery. Years earlier, Phillips had begun to look systematically for places where salt sheets might be obscuring oil reservoirs. In 1989, the firm acquired 15 leases, including one at a location called Mahogany. It was a speculative move. Salt plays tricks with seismic sound waves, which travel through salt at a much higher velocity than through the surrounding sediments, and also get refracted, much as the image of a pencil is bent when it is stuck in a glass of water. Obtaining clear images of rocks in their proper location under the salt seemed almost impossible. To get a better focus, Philip shot a 3D seismic survey over the prospect, and to share the substantial expenses of conducting the survey and drilling through the salt, twice the cost of a normal well, the company took on Anadarko and Amico as partners. Philip's geophysicists then processed the seismic data with a newly developed computing algorithm yielding a picture sufficiently improved to make an informed stab at the target. The first well, drilled by a diamond offshore semi-submersible, passed through 3,800 feet of salt, at one point encountering unstable rock that threatened to collapse the well. Eventually, the drill hit a 100 million barrel field. In 1996, Phillips' mahogany platform began producing at 20,000 barrels per day. The subsalt play progressed, haltingly, from mahogany. Drilling through salt involved myriad technical complications. Under high temperature and pressure, salt masses flow, creep, and deform like plastic. This movement can shift the well casing and production tubing. These wells also had to be drilled to great depths, escalating costs. And limitations on computer power made it difficult to obtain reliable seismic images from beneath the salt, adding risk to exploration. Subsalt wells missed hydrocarbons a lot more often than they hit them. As operators drilled a string of dry holes, the post-mahogany euphoria ebbed. In the 1995 to 1997 lease sales, companies began to turn from shallow subsalt prospects, pursuing instead ultra-deep water, greater than 5,000 feet, prospects, looking for easier-to-image drilling targets in fold belts formed by the lateral movement of salt and sediment. In 1995, Oryx Energy made a discovery at Neptune, opening a new play in the western Atwater fold belt. The next year, Shell announced a strike at its Baja prospect in the far western Gulf. This discovery initiated the Perdido fold belt play in more than 8,000 feet of water. A deeper ocean frontier once again beckoned the industry, an industry restructured and globalized. 
As geologists and geophysicists in Houston dedicated themselves to solving the riddles presented by depths of the Gulf of Mexico, the world oil industry began a radical restructuring. Oil and gas companies had not yet recovered from the 1980s bust when oil prices swooned again in the late 1990s, driven in large part by the drop in global demand precipitated by the Asian financial crisis. Increased shareholder pressure on oil firms to improve short-term financial results and longer-term profitability spurred one of the greatest merger movements in history. In 1998, BP acquired Amico. The next year, Exxon merged with Mobil in an $80 billion deal to create the world's largest company. BP Amico countered by acquiring Arco. Total merged with FINA and ELF, renamed Total in 2003. Chevron combined with Texaco. And finally, Conoco and Philips joined to create the sixth supermajor, along with Royal Dutch Shell. During these consolidations, many companies relocated staff from New Orleans and elsewhere to Houston, reinforcing that city's claim as the international oil capital. Mergers boosted results as management pared away overlapping functions and laid off employees, reinforcing the trend toward outsourcing R&D and reducing internal technological expertise. Mergers benefited the oil industry, on the other hand, by equipping firms with new capital reserves needed to finance long-term growth strategies, some of them dependent on riskier but potentially higher-return ventures. The Deepwater Gulf figured significantly in the growth strategies of all the super-major oil companies, albeit as only one among several frontier provinces worldwide. They took renewed interest in Arctic and subarctic regions and began to invest in other deep-water basins from the northeast Atlantic west of the Shetland Islands to the Campos Basin off Brazil, to West Africa's Gulf of Guinea and offshore Angola, to northwest Australia. By the early 2000s, analysts regarded the three provinces rimming the central Atlantic Ocean, the Gulf of Mexico, Brazil, and West Africa, as the new Golden Triangle the place where the largest future reserves were likely to be found. Echoing the oil companies, consolidation also swept through offshore contractors. After half of the world's seismic crews were idled in 1999 due to price collapse early in the year, the ensuing shakeout left only a handful of seismic contractors led by Western Gecko, owned by Schlumberger and Baker Hughes, Petroleum Geoservices, and CGG, and Veritas, which merged in 2007. The major oil service companies, which provided a variety of drilling, evaluation, well completion, and production services, began to combine at the same time. Notable was the 1998 merger between the oil field giants, Halliburton and Dresser Industries. Most significantly, the drilling contractor industry, continuously in the process of mergers, acquisitions, and bankruptcies, consolidated further. In 1999, Sedgo Forex and Transocean, themselves the products of earlier mergers, became Transocean Sedgo Forex, later simplified as Transocean. In 2000, it acquired R&B Falcon, whose assets included a semi-submersible under construction in Korea by Hyundai Heavy Industries called the Deepwater Horizon. In 2001, Global Marine merged with Santa Fe, and six years later, this firm became part of the modern Transocean, by far the largest offshore drilling firm in the world. 
During this era, offshore oil exploration and production became an increasingly global enterprise. U.S. operators searched for oil in deepwater basins outside the Gulf of Mexico, and more than ever, companies such as Norway's Statoil, Brazil's Petrobras, and France's Total were drilling in the Gulf. Shipyards along the Gulf Coast, the pioneers in design and construction of mobile offshore drilling units, had by the 1990s almost totally surrendered this work to competitors in Korea and Singapore. Many of the largest offshore engineering, construction, and pipelaying firms, Hirama Marine Contractors, Technip, Whirly Parsons, and others, were globally oriented companies based outside the United States. Offshore contractors headquartered in the Gulf survived by expanding internationally. Morgan City's J. Ray McDermott branched out around the world more aggressively after the 1980s industry depression and eventually moved its headquarters to Houston. Louisiana-based Gulf Island fabricators, Chet Morrison contractors, Global Industries, and even Frank's casing crew and rental tools grew from small family-owned firms servicing operations in the Gulf to become major offshore contractors active worldwide. BP's Moment In the late 1990s, the global company making the biggest news in the Gulf of Mexico was BP. Founded in 1908 and since 1954 named British Petroleum, it had for decades built its business around access to crude oil from Iran and neighboring Middle Eastern countries. In the 1960s and 1970s, BP achieved great success in discovering and developing oil reserves in the North Sea and in Alaska's Prudhoe Bay. By the early 1990s, however, BP had been exiled from the Middle East and Nigeria. Production from Prudhoe and the North Sea were in decline. Billions of dollars had been invested in unprofitable non-petroleum ventures, and an ambitious exploration program had yet to bear fruit. The company tottered on the brink of bankruptcy. Sir John Brown, a forceful exploration manager whose father had also worked for BP, orchestrated its stunning turnaround. In the 1980s, as executive vice president of Sohio, BP's American subsidiary, he reined in spending and cut staff in order to place the company on better footing. Returning to London in 1989, he recognized BP's exploration arm. Brown's slashed expenditures established a rigid, if not ruthless, performance ethic and refocused on high-risk but potentially high-reward opportunities. Upon becoming chief executive in 1995, he directed a major part of BP's upstream focus to the deep-water gulf. In the deals he negotiated to acquire Amico and Arco, BP emerged with a greatly expanded portfolio of Gulf leases and assets. In the late 1990s, BP's Gulf exploration team made a series of remarkable deepwater discoveries. Once the fields came online, they vaulted BP ahead of Shell as the Gulf's largest oil producer. BP prided itself as a fast follower rather than an early adopter in exploiting technological innovations. BP had closely followed Shell at Mars and quickly applied what it had learned to develop the Marlin field with a tension leg platform in 3,400 feet of water. BP also joined with Exxon in developing deep water discoveries at the Hoover and Diana fields in the western Gulf. After the string of subsalt dry holes in the mid-1990s, some of BP's competitors began looking for other kinds of plays the Gulf might still present. Shell shifted to managing production from its large number of deep water developments. 
but BP sprang faster than anyone to confront the Gulf's nagging exploration challenge, the salt. In a costly and complex undertaking, BP combined new advances in computer processing for 3D seismic imaging with new methods of acquiring seismic data from multiple directions to gather a better understanding of the salt history, stratigraphy, and the sources and migration pathways of oil in deep water. BP's scientists and engineers found geographically promising areas just as large as those discovered and profitably exploited on the shallower continental shelf. Based on their analyses, they began to believe that the deep water frontier could ultimately hold 40 billion barrels of commercially exploitable oil, four times the prevailing estimates. Said Dave Rainey, BP's deepwater exploration manager, one of the lessons we have learned about the Gulf of Mexico is never to take it for granted. A new generation of drilling vessels coming onto the market, along with advances in drilling, encouraged BP to take the risk to explore those prospects. Outpacing most of the industry by a year, the company shifted its sights to prospects in much deeper waters. Rich rewards followed with a historic string of giant oil finds in subsalt formations ranging out to 7,000 feet of water. In 1998, BP struck oil in the deep water subsalt of the Green Canyon's Mississippi Fan Fold Belt at Atlantis. Minority partner BHP Billiton and Mad Dog, minority partners BHP Billiton and Chevron, two of the largest fields ever discovered in the Gulf of Mexico. Atlantis's original reserves estimates were 400 to 800 million barrels of oil equivalent, and Mad Dogs were placed at 200 to 450 million barrels. In 1999, working for BP and minority partner Exxon in 6,000 feet of water in the Mississippi Canyon, Transocean's Discoverer Enterprise drilled the largest gulf field of all time, a subsalt prospect called Crazy Horse, subsequently renamed Thunder Horse, containing more than 1 billion barrels of recoverable reserves. That find alone catalyzed yet another rebirth of offshore oil in the Gulf of Mexico. The discoveries kept coming. A month later, BP made another oil and gas hit at Horn Mountain, 150 million barrels of original reserves in the Mississippi Canyon. In 2000, BP and Shell discovered a major above-the-salt deposit at Holstein, more than 200 million barrels, near the Mad Dog and Atlantis fields in the Green Canyon. The same year, those two partners announced their Nakika project, a joint subsea development of five independent fields tied back to a central semi-submersible floating production facility, an industry first for the Gulf of Mexico. In 2001, BP found another giant oil field containing 500 million barrels called Thunder Horse North. Also that year, BP and yet another partner, Chevron, discovered a 100 million barrel field in 7,000 feet of water at their Blind Faith prospect in the Mississippi Canyon. In the harsh glare of hindsight following the Macondo blowout, the executive director of the Natural Resources Defense Council commented that, in the name Blind Faith, it would be hard to find a more fitting symbol of the oil industry's steady and assertive advance into the Gulf's deep waters or the corporate thinking behind it. In August 2002, BP's Brown boldly announced that the company would spend $15 billion during the next decade on drilling and developing these discoveries. BP had become the largest acreage holder in the Deepwater Gulf, 
with more than 650 tracts in water depths greater than 1,500 feet, and in possession of one-third of all deep-water reserves then discovered. The deep-water Gulf of Mexico, Brown asserted, would be the central element of BP's growth strategy. The question is how they will manage the embarrassment of riches they have, said one analyst at the time. They have a bunch of projects, and they need to coordinate people and contractors. There is the sheer scale of the facilities and the size of the investment required. All this before a drop of oil ever comes out of the ground. Clouds on the Horizon After BP's impressive discoveries, the industry dove into deeper waters across the Gulf. From 2001 to 2004, operators found 11 major fields beneath water 7,000 feet deep or more. Most deepwater discoveries were made in relatively young sandstones of the lower Miocene era, but companies increasingly explored down into the deeper and older Paleogene or lower tertiary strata found in the fold belts near the edge of the Sigsby Escarpment, a salt sheet that resembles a near-surface moonscape extending to the base of the continental slope. In 2006, Chevron and its partners, Devon Energy, and Statoil disclosed promising test results from a two-year-old discovery at its Jack Prospect, proving that lower tertiary reservoirs could produce oil at pressures encountered at great depths, creating excitement that the lower tertiary play might ultimately yield between 3 billion and 15 billion barrels of hydrocarbons, collectively rivaling the size of the Great Prudhoe Bay discovery. This implied a future for ultra-deep drilling, ranging out to 10,000-foot water depths and 25,000 feet beneath the seafloor. Reported the Oil and Gas Journal, the Jack 2 test results boost confidence in that potential and highlight the central role technology plays in future supply. The industry was in need of a confidence booster after the previous three years of development challenges that had sorely tested BP's and the industry's confidence and conviction about deep water. BP's decision to develop multiple deep water fields at once was an incredibly ambitious undertaking. Its program focused on the major fields at Holstein, a discovery above the salt, Mad Dog, Atlantis in the Green Canyon, and Thunder Horse in the Mississippi Canyon, with total potential reserves of 2.5 billion barrels of oil in water ranging from 4,000 to 7,000 feet deep, requiring wells reaching 30,000 feet in total depth. To produce oil at these places, BP selected truss spars for Holstein and Mad Dog, and semi-submersibles, such as the one BP and Shell had introduced at Nakika, for Thunder Horse and Atlantis. Beyond about 4,000-foot depths, the weight of tension cables was too great, so BP could not employ tension-leg platforms, the workhorses at Shell's first deep-water projects. The spar, successfully demonstrated in 1996, is a giant buoy consisting of a large diameter vertical cylinder supporting a deck for drilling and processing. Its deep draft floating caisson keeps about 90% of the structure underwater, giving the structure favorable motion characteristics. During 2000 to 2005, Care McGee, acquired by Anadarko in 2006, went on to pioneer several innovations in spar designs. BP's choice between spars and semi-submersible production facilities depended upon different economic, functional, and safety factors at each field. All four projects would be linked by pipeline to a platform hub, where crude oil would be transferred into a 390-mile pipeline, the Cameron Highway, and transported to refineries at Texas City 
and Port Arthur. All four projects, as well as Nakika, also would connect to the BP-operated Mardi Gras transportation system, itself a billion-dollar project that integrated five different pipelines covering a total of 450 miles, with capacity to transport 1 million barrels of crude and 1.5 billion cubic feet of natural gas per day. The selection and development of technology on all these projects was a major challenge at every step, given the extreme water depths, reservoir conditions, and associated environmental issues. Thunder Horse had an unusually high-pressure, high-temperature reservoir. Atlantis was located under complex seafloor topography near the steep Sigsby Escarpment, and a large portion of the field was subsalt. Mad Dog lay under a massive salt canopy, causing large uncertainties in describing the actual reservoir. The Holstein geology forced BP to use a spar with wells housed on the platform. As BP production managers admitted in 2004, none of the projects can be categorized as business as usual. The $5 billion Thunder Horse project was especially challenging. A major incident in drilling occurred even before the semi-submersible facility was put in place. In May 2003, the top of the drilling riser on the Discoverer Enterprise broke loose from the vessel, ripped apart again 3,000 feet under the surface, and left the lower marine riser package to collapse on and around the top of the blowout preventer, where the riser and drill pipe snapped off. The blowout preventer's blind shear rams were activated and worked as designed, averting any spill. No one was hurt, and the well was secure, BP reported, but the initial scene was daunting. An even bigger scare awaited the Thunder Horse semi-submersible production facility, which was towed to the field and moored on location in April 2005. As work proceeded to connect the pre-drilled subsea wells and commission all the facilities above and below the water, Hurricane Dennis neared in July, forcing the evacuation of all personnel and leaving the production facility unmanned. No one could have anticipated the major shock that awaited the first helicopter flights after the storm had passed, according to one official BP account. The columns and other areas of the hull had filled with water, causing the facility to list to one side. Investigations later revealed that a valve in the bilge and ballast system had been installed backward, allowing seawater to move into the hull, a failure exacerbated by electrical pathways that were not watertight. Had BP not arrived when it did, the structure might have been lost. Crisis management crews were able to right the facility within a week, but reworking Thunder Horse's hull systems delayed commissioning for a year. Similar work on the Atlantis semi-submersible production platform pushed its installation back several months too, until July 2006. Nor was that the end of BP's major shocks. It discovered that a weld had cracked open on one of the Thunder Horse manifolds that collected oil from the network of satellite subsea wells. The company made the difficult decision to pull out all the manifolds and subsea equipment that had a similar weld configuration, adding hundreds of millions of dollars to the cost of the project. After a lengthy investigation, engineers found that minute cracks had formed in the thermal insulation on the manifold pipework, leading to reactions that embrittled the weld interface. BP and contractors developed new weld techniques, created more rigorous inspection and assurance procedures, and refurbished all the affected subsea equipment on Thunder Horse and at Atlantis. Thunder Horse finally delivered its first oil on June 2008, three years behind schedule. 
by March 2009, production ramped up to 250,000 barrels per day, 4.5% of total U.S. daily production. Atlantis went online a year before Thunder Horse in 2007, but BP has been dogged by accusations that Atlantis has not been in compliance with safety and environmental regulations. Damaging Hurricanes BP was not alone confronting environmental challenges. During 2002 and 2004 to 2005, hurricanes ravaged the Gulf Coast with major impacts on offshore infrastructure and operations. In September 2002, Hurricane Lily blew into the heart of the ship shoal, Eugene Island, and South Marshall Island areas, damaging platforms and pipelines. Two years later, Ivan, a Category 4 storm, swept through the alley east of the Mississippi River Delta, causing mud flows and anchor dragging by mobile drilling units that tore up undersea pipelines. The following year, Hurricane Katrina flooded New Orleans and points east with horrible effects. Offshore, Katrina destroyed 47 platforms and extensively damaged another 20. The 1,000-ton drilling rig on Shell's Mars platform collapsed, prompting an around-the-clock, on-site recovery effort. A month later, Hurricane Rita, storming farther west, wiped out 66 platforms and broke up another 32. Rita capsized Chevron's Typhoon, an unfortunately named mini-tension-leg platform. The majority of the platforms obliterated in these two storms were from an early generation of Gulf facilities, more than 30 years old. The two hurricanes also damaged more than 70 vessels and nearly 130 oil and natural gas pipelines, as they hit more prolific and sensitive areas than previous storms and accordingly caused much more extensive damages. Ominously, the short interval between the two storms exhausted the resources available for normal recovery and overwhelmed support bases. The oil industry and deep water technology at decade's end. As the end of the decade approached, the offshore industry in the Gulf had recovered from hurricane devastation and pressed on with deep water and ultra deep water developments. Although many independent companies, such as Anadarko, Hess, BHP, Newfield, Marathon, and Mariner, had substantial deep water leases and were actively exploring and developing them. The edge of the frontier was mainly the playground of the super-majors and firms with partial government ownership, such as Norway's Statoil and Brazil's Petrobras. In September 2009, Transocean's Deepwater Horizon semi-submersible made a historic discovery for BP at the company's Tiber Prospect in the Keithley Canyon. Drilling in 4,000 feet of water and to a world-record total depth of 35,055 feet, Deepwater Horizon tapped in a pool of crude estimated to contain four to six billion barrels of oil equivalent, one of the largest U.S. discoveries. Six months later, in March 2010, Shell, with partners Chevron and BP, started production at its Perdido Spar in 8,000 feet of water in the Alaminos Canyon. A hub for the development of three fields, Perdido was the world's deepest offshore platform and the first project to pump oil and gas from the lower tertiary. Other lower tertiary developments were coming onto the horizon. Later in the year, Petrobras planned to develop the Gulf's first floating production, offloading, and storage facility to produce from lower tertiary reservoirs at its Cascade and Chinook prospects. By 2010, the industry had announced 19 discoveries in the lower tertiary trend. 
14 of them containing more than 100 million barrels of oil equivalent. Technical Tests The fanfare around these discoveries and developments could not disguise the fact that the technical challenges of ultra-deep water drilling and production and the subsalt geology remained unique and formidable. Water depths are extreme, down to 10,000 feet. Total well depths, as Tiber demonstrated, can go beyond 30,000 feet. Well shut-in pressures can surpass 10,000 pounds per square inch. Bottom hole temperatures can exceed 350 degrees Fahrenheit. Salt and tar zone formations can be problematic. The sandstone reservoirs are tightly packed and ensuring hydrocarbon flow through risers and pipelines can be difficult. According to a 2008 report from Chevron engineers for the Society of Petroleum Engineers, all these factors separate many Gulf of Mexico deep water and ultra-deep water wells from deep water and ultra-deep water wells in other parts of the world. Drilling in extreme water depths poses special challenges. Risers connecting a drilling vessel to the blowout preventer on the sea floor have to be greatly lengthened, and they are exposed to strong ocean currents encountered in the central gulf. Managing higher volumes of mud and drilling fluid in these long risers makes drillers' jobs more demanding. Connecting and maintaining blowout preventers thousands of feet beneath the surface can only be performed by remote operating vehicles. A 2007 article in Drilling Contractor described how blowout preventer requirements got tougher as drilling went deeper because of low temperatures and high pressures at the ocean bottom. The author discussed taking advantage of advances in metallurgy to use higher strength materials in the blowout preventer's ram connecting rods or ram shafts. More generally, he suggested some fundamental paradigm shifts were needed across a broad range of blowout preventer technologies to deal with deep water conditions. Under such conditions, methane hydrates raised a host of serious problems. Methane gas locked in ice, fire ice, forms at low temperature and high pressure and can often be found in seafloor sediments. Temperature and pressure changes caused by drilling or even by natural conditions can activate the release of 160 cubic feet of gas from one cubic foot of methane, collapsing surrounding sediment and thus destabilizing the drilling foundation. Hydrates can also present well control problems. As hydrocarbons are produced and transported in cold temperatures and high pressures, hydrates can form and block the flow through deep pipelines and other conduits. Government, academic, and industry research programs on hydrates and associated flow problems begun in the 1990s are continuing. More broadly, knowledge about localized geology, types of hydrocarbons, and pressure profiles in ultra-deep water wells is still not thoroughly developed. Geological conditions are complicated and vary from prospect to prospect, and from well to well. Each well, indeed, has its own personality that requires maintaining an extremely delicate balance between the counteracting pressures of the subsurface formation and drilling operation. Beneath the salt, pressures in the pores of the sediment are exceedingly hard to predict. Reservoirs in the lower tertiary are thicker and with higher viscosity than the fluids found in younger rock. Finally, ultra-deep water developments are far removed from shore and thus from established infrastructure. As a BP technical paper prepared for the May 2010 Offshore Technology Conference noted, the trend of deep water discoveries in the Gulf of Mexico is shifting toward one with greater challenges across many disciplines represented by the conditions of lower tertiary discoveries. 
Nevertheless, the challenges seemed manageable, and the rewards appeared worth the perceived risk. The offshore industry had enjoyed a long run in the Gulf, without an environmental catastrophe. The hurricanes of mid-decade had caused widespread damage, but not a major offshore spill. In recent years, the industry had touted its relatively clean record in the Gulf as a justification to allow exploration elsewhere. As oil prices climbed from 2003 to 2008, peaking at over $140 per barrel, so did the industry's interest in exploring other frontier areas, especially offshore Alaska. In 2007, Shell and Total bid aggressively for federal leases offered in the Beaufort Sea, and in 2008, Shell spent $2.1 billion for leases in the Chukchi Sea. The following year, however, a lawsuit in a federal appeals court challenging the Minerals Management Service's environmental studies preceding the sale held up applications for permits to drill on these leases. Still, from 2008 through early 2010, both government and industry were largely bullish about the potential of offshore drilling for the nation's future. Not incidentally, both were earning even greater revenues from ever more ambitious exploration. In 2008, President George W. Bush and Congress ended the leasing moratoriums on vast stretches of the U.S. Outer Continental Shelf, and Bush proposed opening new areas for exploration. In a March 31, 2010 announcement, President Barack Obama scaled back Bush's plan, but he left open the possibility of expanding offshore leasing beyond the Gulf of Mexico and Alaska. The president defended his position by observing, oil rigs today generally don't cause spills. As President Obama spoke, Transocean's Deepwater Horizon, fresh from completing BP's spectacular find at Tiber a few months earlier, was busy drilling on BP's Mississippi Canyon 252 lease in approximately 5,000 feet of water. BP had named the prospect Macondo, after the fictional town in Gabriel Garcia Marquez's novel, 100 Years of Solitude. The fate of the town of the Macondo, as described in a memorable passage by Marquez, presaged the fate of the Macondo well and summed up the challenges facing the industry as a whole as it plumbed the depths of the gulf. It was as if God had decided to put to the test every capacity for surprise and was keeping the inhabitants of Macondo in a permanent alternation between excitement and disappointment, doubt and revelation, to such an extreme that no one knew for certain where the limits of reality lay. End of section 5